Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 26. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And that the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Easter. We're glad you're here with us this morning. We love this church. As Kerwin said, this is our second anniversary here, and it's a little daunting to start at a church on Easter. It's like your first start in the NFL is the Super Bowl or something, <laughs> but uh, we, we love this church so much. We love the people here. We're glad you're with us this morning. Last year, I was really excited for Easter because it was my first one with a year behind me. We knew everybody. We'd done Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. They had gone great. I had probably the best sermon that was ever going to be preached in my notes for that day. And Saturday morning, Laura and I are at the gym on the treadmill, and uh, we're having a great time working out, and she looks over and says, I think I wet my pants. You probably didn't expect to hear that at church this morning, but I said, you know, I've known you for like 12 years. This has never been a problem before. So we go to the hospital. I call Grant and say, hey, I hope you've got a great Easter sermon because we're about to have a baby. And so he preached a great sermon. We had Davey last year. And I'll tell you what the oddest thing about this was on Good Friday, one of our elders, we're cleaning up after Good Friday, and one of our elders, Kirk Humphreys, is, comes over to Laura who's vacuuming the carpets to get ready for Sunday. And he says, you know, you should be vacuuming. It'll put you into labor. And she says, oh, yeah, that would, that, that's an old wives' tale. That man is prophetic. <laughs> Between him doing that and Nancy Dees, who just read for us, knowing we were pregnant before we were pregnant, there are some amazing, amazing people here. And we are excited just to be here Easter morning. And we're excited to celebrate with you all today. So in 1990, in November, the Israeli Antiquities Authorities got a call from a dig site. Now, this is not uncommon in Israel because almost anywhere you want to build something in Israel, there's thousands of years of history. So you've got to get all this approval, and you've got to be careful, and if you hit something that looks old, 
You have to call the IAA immediately. So for them, this was not really an odd phone call that they were building, they were adding on to this bridge, and all of a sudden they hit what, they, what looked like a tomb. And so one of the archaeologists at the IAA decides to go out and check things out. And when he arrives on the scene, he notices immediately that there's something different about this tomb. Because when he goes into the tomb and he sees that under the collapsed roof that this construction company had caved in, there were bone boxes. And bone boxes to an archaeologist are a gold mine because in Jerusalem, bone boxes were only used between the first century BC and the first century AD. So if you discover something like this, you know immediately when this is from. So they call an emergency dig. They send a team. They begin to uncover these boxes. There are four ornate bone boxes, which are called ossuaries. And when they start to look at them, they, there's this one that is so ornately decorated, they thought, this has got to be somebody famous from the first century. Sure enough, as they uncover these and clean them up and take them for examination, they see on the end of this big, ornate box, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Now, if you've been reading the Passion stories this week, the name Caiaphas will sound very familiar to you. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time Jesus was killed. In fact, he was the one who did most of the heavy lifting to get Jesus killed. He was the high priest and therefore the religious authority over the temple. And when Jesus came in and cleansed the temple on the Monday after Palm Sunday, when he chased out the money changers and said, you have turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves, it was Caiaphas's money changers that he had chased out. Well, that was the boiling point for Caiaphas. He and the Sanhedrin, they decided in that moment, we are going to have to put him to death. And when Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified and he was taken to trial, he was taken to trial at Caiaphas's house in his courtyard. And when they're questioning Jesus and they say, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. It was Caiaphas who stood up and tore his clothes and said, this man is blaspheming. He must be put to death. He's the one that lobbied Pontius Pilate, his Roman overlord, to allow them through the Roman system to do capital punishment, which they were otherwise not allowed to do. Caiaphas is the arch enemy of Jesus in the Bible story. And this ornate bone box, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, is the Caiaphas of these stories. But that actually wasn't the most interesting bone box in that tomb. There's a smaller box next to this one, and on that box there's an inscription that says, Miriam, daughter of Simon, who we know from external sources is the wife of Caiaphas, the high priest. And as they began to look at this box of Miriam, the, son, the daughter of Simon, they found a single bronze coin in the bottom of the box, placed where you would have the skull in these bone boxes on the ground. Almost, it had been there so long, it had almost become part of the box itself, printed in 42 AD 
under Herod Agrippa I. Now, why is this so significant? A single Roman coin. Well, there was a pagan Greek custom when you died that they would put a coin in the mouth of the dead when they buried them so that they could pay the ferryman for a trip across the river Styx into the afterlife. And sometimes they would put them on the eyelids, sometimes they would put them under the tongue, but you would need that money because you had a life ahead of you in the underworld. So you have a Jewish woman, wife of the high priest, who has a coin under her tongue in her bone box. But actually, it gets even crazier than that. Caiaphas and the Sadducees were unlike the Pharisees. So if you're reading the gospel accounts, you've got the Pharisees who are the religious elite. Think of like seminary professors, scribes. They were the know-it-alls that Jesus battled with in the temple saying, you've missed the heart of what God is doing. But the Sadducees were different. The Sadducees were, they were politically much more powerful than the Pharisees. And they were much more lax religiously. In fact, the Sadducees, they didn't actually even count the Old Testament as God's word. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. The Sadducees are the ones that come to Jesus and they say, here's, here's a stumper for you. There's seven brothers, and they marry this woman, and each one of them dies. And so, being kinsmen redeemers, they all marry this woman. Who's going to be husband and wife in the afterlife? Thinking that this would lead Jesus to say, you're right, the afterlife is really a crazy idea. We shouldn't believe in it. And do you remember what Jesus says to the Sadducees? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It's almost like Jesus was saying to them, watch and see. Watch and see. So you have a Jewish woman doing a pagan Greek custom who is married to the leader of the group who believes there is no resurrection of the dead. How do we have that happening in Jerusalem? Well, maybe it was because 10 years before this, somebody had risen from the dead. Maybe it was because 10 years before this, against her husband's demands and wishes, even though Pilate had said, make the tomb as secure as you can, one of my favorite lines in the Gospels, a man had risen from the dead. Of course, we wouldn't say that Caiaphas' wife got the whole point of the resurrection, but it made her think about it. It made her come to grips with the fact that we now live in a world where we know that people rise from the dead. Do you, do you realize that when Jesus rose from the dead, this wasn't just a local thing that happened in Jerusalem. This wasn't just something that a certain sect of the Jews were now claiming that Jesus is risen from the dead. This was something that reverberated across the world because the world as it was known before Jesus' death and resurrection and the world as it is known now after Jesus' resurrection are fundamentally different places. Before that, death was batting a thousand Everybody that died stayed dead. And now, since Jesus has risen, everybody has to confront the fact that people will rise from the dead. You will rise from the dead. And if you are in Christ, you will go on with him into glory where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, just like he said he was going to do. 
But not everybody believed. Not everybody believed. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus rises and appears to all these people, I love this. This is so human. Matthew tells us that Jesus appears before the 11 and these others, and it says they worshiped him. They were worshiping him because he was risen from the dead. And he says, but some doubted. Some doubted. Doubt is as old as the Christian faith. In fact, doubt is a fundamental piece of humanity that people who saw the risen Lord were like, I'm not convinced. People like Caiaphas' wife thought, I'm not convinced that Jesus is the one he says he is, but I've got to hedge my bets about the afterlife. Paul confronts a similar problem in Corinth. You know, Paul was one of the first Christians to go out and plant churches, but Paul himself had been a persecutor of the church. Paul had been one of the people who was stodgily opposed to Jesus' message, his claims, his interpretation of Scripture, so much so that he was putting early Christians to death until he encountered the risen Christ. And from that moment on, Paul made it his goal to preach the resurrection everywhere. See, this is the central message of the Christian faith. It is simple. Peter stands up at Pentecost and he says, here's what happened. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by God with signs and wonders, this Jesus was delivered up, he was crucified, he was killed, but God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the pains of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. And then he says this, and this is the message this morning. This Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses to the risen Savior. Now, there were people in Corinth when Paul was preaching this message who were doubting. In fact, there was a whole group of people in the Corinthian church that Paul had planted, that he had been ministering to, who were saying, I'm not sure that the dead really rise. I'm not sure that this really happens. This is kind of the amazing thing when people say they want to go back to the early church. You're like, which early church? Corinth? It was a total disaster. Galatia, they were, the angriest letter Paul ever writes is to the church in Galatia. The church in Jerusalem, they were persecuted so badly that they scattered and planted churches across the ancient. Which early church do you want to go back to? We've got it pretty good in America today. The Corinthian church was struggling with whether or not people could really rise from the dead. In our passage this morning, Paul says, hey, here's the big problem. If nobody rises from the dead, then even Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, things haven't changed the way we thought they did. For the doubters in that day, Paul is posing a question. What if Jesus rose from the dead? What would be different? Why is it the central piece of Christianity not just to say Jesus is a wonderful teacher, Jesus was an exemplary human being, Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was favored by God. None of that is enough for the Christian message. Why is it that the Christian message is he was raised from the dead? Well, Paul begins to explain this in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. Against those who say, in fact, maybe the dead don't rise, he says, if the dead don't rise, then Jesus has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, your faith is worthless. 
This word means empty. It has no content. Your faith is on something that is a sham because you are still in your sins. In fact, this is the, this is the first thing of two things that Paul posits to them. Think about how the world would change if Jesus was raised. The first thing that would be different is sin would be defeated. Sin would be totally defeated if Jesus rose from the dead. Because everybody knows, you don't have to live very long to realize that a hypothetical resurrection or a spiritual message of resurrection or God just shining his face down on a really wonderful person can't translate into the real physical problem we have of sin. See, the problem of humanity is, is that everyone who has ever lived, other than Jesus, has sinned against the God of the universe. That we have rebelled, we've become our own gods, we've worshipped our own idols, and we're smarter about it, and we have cooler ways of doing it than they did back then. We don't bow down to little wooden idols, we, we make them out of titanium and, and, and chips, and we, we do it online instead of doing it in a temple, but we worship the same idols that they did, and our sin needs to be paid for. In fact, we don't just need a good thought or some ethereal help. We need someone to actually come and shed their blood for sin because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. See, this is why it needed to be a real death and a real resurrection. Laura and I were listening to this podcast of a family who was traveling. They have tons of kids, and they named one of their kids Shad, which is short for Shadrach. A little bit odd name, but solid biblical Name And they're going through TSA, and the lady who's checking them in uh, sees the ID and was like, oh, I've never met a person named Shadrach before. And they, they just reply, well, you know, we named him after one of our favorite Bible stories. And the, the lady who's checking them in looks very offended when they say that, and she goes, oh, it's not a story. It's an event. It's the truth. And they're like, we know. We named him that. We, we get it, right? We we understand this. Like, we're the ones who named our kids Shadrach. But I wonder if too many of us are like, yeah, these are wonderful stories. But the Bible doesn't claim that the resurrection is a story. The Bible claims that the resurrection is an event that happened in history that matters for you now. It's a real resurrection against the real debt of sin, against real people who have screwed up and who have rebelled against God. And Paul, of all people, knows because he says, he appeared to me the least of the apostles, a persecutor of the church. You can't do it any worse than I did. But by God's grace, because Jesus rose from the dead, sin has been defeated in my life. See, Jesus has risen means that the payment for sin cleared. It's like you can write a check for any amount you want. I mean, theoretically, you can pull out your checkbook, you can write whatever dollar amount in there that you want, you can give it to someone, and you can lie with a straight face that you are going to give that money to them. But if the check doesn't clear, it doesn't matter, and you're probably going to prison afterwards. Jesus paid a gigantic debt it was like the debt that had hung over people for all of history. Every single sin among the people of Jesus. Jesus wrote a check to cover all of it. And the resurrection shows that the check cleared. God vindicated Jesus. He took the payment. Sin has been canceled. It's been paid for. Jesus is alive. 
That's what the resurrection proves is God really is going to take your sin, put it on Christ. He will pay for it, and now you stand. And Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for someone who is in Christ. That means the worst thing, the thing that you would never tell anybody that you have done or you have thought, the thing that you're ashamed even to go there in your mind right now, God looks at you, he says, no condemnation. Your sin has been paid for. In fact, every sin will be paid for, either by you or by Jesus. And the resurrection shows that when Jesus died, taking the sins of his people on him on the cross and rose from the dead, everything you can throw on him has been paid for. You are forgiven. You are not condemned. You are in Christ. It is just like you had never sinned before. So Paul is saying, if the dead don't rise, guys, this is bad for us. We are still in our sins. The check bounced. But Jesus has been raised. In fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. And though in Adam our father and Adam all die. Now everyone who is in Christ will be made alive and Christ is the first fruits and then at his coming we too who belong to him will rise and then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom of of God to the father after destroying every rule and every authority because he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Maybe my favorite hymn is an old Charles Wesley, my favorite Easter hymn is an old Charles Wesley hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Anybody know this hymn? It said, the second verse says, love's redeeming work is done, hallelujah, fought the fight, the battle won, hallelujah, death in vain forbids him rise, hallelujah, but Christ has opened paradise, hallelujah. Paul points this out to the Corinthians. It's not just that your sin has been canceled now. It's not just that you've been forgiven now. It's that the moment you trust in Christ and ask for forgiveness of your sins, eternal life begins. So sometimes we get lulled into thinking that eternal life will begin as soon as we die. Then we'll go to heaven, everything, everything will be great. But Jesus actually teaches this radical concept that the moment you trust in him, you are new. You actually have a new life and eternal life the flourishing life, the wonderful life of Jesus himself is yours starting now. This, this makes all the difference in the world, in the church. See, the message of Christianity is God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And if you believe in him, you, you actually won't perish. You will have everlasting, eternal life. And so it's not just the obligation of God, it's not just the justice of God, it's the love of God Amen. that motivated him to send his son for you. And it's the love of God that actually translates into a brand new life. See, in John 15, we get Jesus' last message to his disciples. When they're having the last supper together, Jesus, it's almost like he says, I've still got a few things to teach you. And in John chapter 15, he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And you'll remember back when a scribe comes and asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? 
They, they agree that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then Jesus says, the second commandment is like it. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, sitting there with his disciples, says, this is what eternal life looks like. Love one another as I have loved you. No one can love anyone with a greater love than this to lay down your life for your friends. See, there's a vertical element to the cross and the resurrection, and there's a horizontal element to the resurrection, and they are linked together. If you have been loved by God, if you have been forgiven by God, if you have trusted in God, it is impossible for you not to reflect that love to other people. Right? There is no such thing as a Christian who knows the forgiveness of God and loves God and is following him and doesn't reflect God's character to the people around them. It's an impossibility. Jesus says that you will be known to others by the way you love one another. Why? Because that's what your dad looks like. You have his DNA. You're a carbon copy of him. You're being made by the Holy Spirit into his image, and what he has done is loved us with such a transformative, powerful love that we will begin to look like that to one another. John Webster is one of the great theologians of this century, and sometimes I feel like it's the great theologians that miss these simple points, but he nails it. Love is the renewal of human fellowship. Love is seeing my neighbor as someone given to me, someone who stands before me as what they are and who faces me with an obligation to love my neighbor, then I may not turn from them. I, I have no ability to dismiss them as too ignorant, too foolish, too demanding, too different. I must recognize in them a summons to fellowship and service. You know, I said at the beginning how much we love this church, but we, we loved God before we came here. We loved God. We were in with all of what we've just talked about. But when you come to a church that gets this, that's when it really changes. When people get what it means to sacrificially love other people, to lay down their lives, to look like Christ, like other people, that's, that's when you know that you're no longer playing the short game. You're, you're playing for eternity. If Christ has been raised from the dead, this is just a very short little trial period for heaven, for being with God forever. What you do here matters for eternity if Christ has been raised from the dead. And you don't have to get your reward in this life because it's coming in the future. You don't have to be well respected in this life. You don't have to have accolades in this life. You don't have to be successful in the ways that are demanded of you in this life because you're now playing a different game. We are sowing into eternity, right? That's why as a church, our church and many churches are looking at people and saying our greatest goal is that they would know the love of Christ, right? That's why this, week, this past season we've been doing an alpha course in Eufaula, and it's just a few at a time, but we're inviting them to come, and we'll pay for their dinner, and we'll give them a Bible if they will just begin to talk about what it would be like if Jesus had risen from the dead. 
And in fact, we're seeing people's lives transformed through that because we're not inwardly focused, we're outwardly focused. We want to lay our lives down. We're working on a partnership right now to get the New Testament over the course of five or six years, however long it takes us to set aside our giving to do this, to get the New Testament in a tongue that has no access to the Bible. Because we believe that although none of us in this room may ever meet these people, we will see them in eternity if we can get them to know the love of God, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of Christ. That's why at our church we set aside 10% of every dollar that comes in here, we set aside 10% for global missions and 10% for local missions. So we say, God, we'll take 20% of everything we get, not to spend on what we're doing here, but to spend on what we're doing out there because we want to be part of the eternal ministry of Christ. The message of the resurrection is it's not about us. We're taken care of. We know where we're going. We know what Jesus has done. We know what awaits us, but we want to bring as many people as possible. Do you view your life around this central fact? You are sure of where you stand with God. You are sure of where you're going, and you want to be sure about the people that you know and love. See, the disciples, they didn't get it before the resurrection. In fact, this should be a comfort to everyone who reads the Bible that if the disciples were this dense, there is hope for all of us. They did not get it. They scattered when Jesus was arrested, and it wasn't until the resurrection that they began to see what God had been doing all along. What we do here is worth leveraging our lives for because it will affect all of eternity. So, I'll conclude with this when the, if the band would come back up and lead us again in worship. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you're doing a memorial tour, one of the new memorials, in fact, just about 10 years old, is the, the memorial to Martin Luther King Jr. And I was there a few weeks ago, and it is a striking image when you go there. It's this giant rock face cliff. I mean, big rock face, and in the middle of it, there's a stone that has been carved out of the middle, and maybe 30 or 40 yards away, there is the stone, and on the stone is carved Martin Luther King Jr., and on the side of that stone is a line from his I Have a Dream speech, where he said, by faith, we will be able to hew out of a mountain of despair a stone of hope. Out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Certainly he lived that, but I wonder if the designers of this monument realized that if you're a Christian, as Martin Luther King Jr. was, and you go and look at that, you cannot help but think of another stone. When you go there and you see that, and you see the stone that has been pulled away, you cannot help but think that it looks exactly like the empty tomb. That the stone that is rolled away from the side of the mountain, out of a mountain of despair, that stone is a rock of hope. That's the message that Kerwin talked about this morning. He is not here. He's risen. The stone was not for Jesus. He was already gone when the stone was rolled away. The stone is for us to be able to look in and see the Savior of the world didn't just die for you. He rose for you. He, his, the empty tomb and the stone that is rolled away is a reminder to us that the, the capstone, the stone the builders rejected, 
has become the hopeful cornerstone of the new world. There stands an empty tomb in the middle of the mountain of death. And the rock is Christ. So he has risen this morning. And that changes everything. The stone was rolled away. The mountain of despair has been hewn out and there is a stone of hope, a risen Christ, the defeater of death, the forgiver of sins, the lover of his people, and we are all witnesses. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that every year we get to realize and celebrate all over again the power and the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus. Father, it is not just a part of our faith. It is the central piece of our faith to claim that we are now living for eternity. We, our eternal life has started now, and anyone who calls upon Jesus can have that life. So Father, this morning as we worship, would you remind us all over again the wonder of the risen Christ. In his name we pray.